at this time, children, to the back for you be taught there on their level. It's a blessing that we have uh, people that will faithfully do that. And it's a blessing to have kids, isn't it? Amen? Young people are the future. All right, Esther chapter 3 is where we're moving to. Esther chapter 3. I had the distinct pleasure and privilege to enjoy some beautiful weather this week, mostly 65 degrees uh, and a couple, we, we suffered one day, it was down in the early 50s, it was, it was rough, but we did make it. But uh, going down, we left here, and it was, of course, we left early on Monday morning, and so it was, I don't know, single digits and, and cold, and we went through some ice and snow, and, and then about, uh, I'd say probably Omaha, I took off my coat, and then uh, a little bit further, I took off my sweater, and uh, then we turned on the air soon after that. What a blessing, Amen warm weather, but I'm thankful to be where we are. That's good. Did you believe that? I'm glad. I'm glad if you believe that. It means I'm getting more and more convincing. Maybe I'll convince myself one day that I enjoy this weather. All right, Esther chapter 3. Last week we started looking at the story of Esther, and uh, as we talk about having an impact and making an impact, we looked at Esther really was one uh, obscure Jewish girl that made an impact in the, in the world uh, that known time. And the king, uh, we saw, just to recap a little bit, uh, the king uh, fired his wife, Vashti, because she did not please him as uh, in doing what he asked her to do. So he fired his wife, and then he held wife tryouts for a year. We, uh, we assumed last week that was the first season of The Bachelor that they had uh, there in Esther. But uh, it, during this tryout period, he found Esther, and she was a beautiful young Jewish girl, keeping her Jewish identity secret as she was promoted to queen and became the king's wife. The question that we considered last week is, can God, in the middle of spiritual and moral darkness, does God still work? Can he still work with us? Can he still work in us? And we, I think, answered that question conclusively. Yes, he can, and yes, he does. He is always at work. Now, I remind you that in this book of Esther, it's, it's unique in all of the Bible because in it, God is not mentioned at all. Not one time in this book. Not only is the entire book not mentioned God, it does not mention the Bible, doesn't mention faith, or really anything spiritual, prayer, or anything like that. It's the only book in the Bible that does that. What we do see all throughout the book of Esther is a long series of coincidences or as I like to say, providential circumstances. Uh, things that God caused to happen, and as we work throughout the book, we're going to see a few today and a few more next week as we go through, but uh, Esther is queen. Mordecai, her uncle, which raised her, uh, really it was her cousin, but uh, the, uh, the, the, he raised her, and he uh, has been promoted now to be sitting at the gate, probably because of Esther. She got uh, pulled some strings there, and he was promoted as well. And last week, we kind of finished the message on the fact that Mordecai, as he's sitting at the gate, overheard two men talk about a plot to kill the king. And so he let Esther know, who let the king know, and together these two saved the king's life. Now, it was uh, just a detail that was thrown in there, but it became, it'll become important as we go throughout this week. But let's read, see what happens in our next, uh, in, in the next part of the story here. We start at Chapter 3, there's so much I'd like to read, but I'm going to just kind of pick some verses and then we can fill in the blanks as we go. Verse number 1, after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamathada, the Agagite, and advanced him 
and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, neither did him reverence. Now if you'll go down to verse number 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now if you'll turn the page and go to chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, and what was done was he made a decree basically to destroy completely the children of uh, the, the Israelites. When Mordecai saw this, he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry. Now go to verse number 13 of chapter 4. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. This is our text verse, these two verses. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I want to preach today on having an impact in a time like this. An impact in a time like this. Father, I pray it help us as we apply this word now and use this story to encourage us to live better for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come into chapter 3, we see five years has passed since Esther became queen, and the devil starts to work uh, and, and tries to destroy uh, what God's going to do. We're introduced to a man named Haman. He was sort of the chief of staff of the king, and he was a promotion, and he was one of those guys that promotion went directly to his head and turned him into a complete tyrant. I like what Abraham Lincoln said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you really want to test a man's character, give him power. Because what a person does with power shows what he truly is. And Haman was proven to be a monster when he got a little power in his hands. Uh, being a faithful Jew, uh, the demand that Haman made is that everybody would bow before him. Anybody he uh, that he comes in contact with or that he passes has to bow. Well, Mordecai said, no, no, I'm a Jew. I'm a child of God. I'm not going to bow. I bow to one and one only, and that is the Lord God himself. The first commandment says that we are not to bow and worship anyone else. And so uh, Haman, uh, Mordecai refused to bow, and this filled Haman with wrath. And so he decided that uh, he would come to the king with a proposition. He didn't only want to kill Mordecai. He found out Mordecai is a Jew, and he's going to kill all his people. He's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. So he comes to the king with a proposition. He said that there was, a, if you read the, the chapter 3, he says there's a people in your kingdom who is uh, against you, and they're uh, traitors, and they're constantly trying to destroy you. He didn't say the Jews. He just called them certain people. If he had, the king would have refused, no doubt. He charged these people with being a scattered and disobedient people, and he offered the king a large sum of money, 10,000 talents of silver. That is approximately $20 million, or three-quarters of the national income uh, for the uh, Persian Empire So the, uh, annually. 
And so he would get the money, of course, from the people he was going to destroy. That was his plan, and give that to the king. Haman lied about the Jews, but that's no surprise. Satan lies all the time about God's people. Uh, he still lies about us. In fact, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. Whenever anyone, friends, starts to gossip to you or accuse to you the uh, people of God, Satan's usually behind it because he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one that wants to tear us down. So uh, foolishly, Ahasuerus the king gave Haman his ring and the authority to do whatever he wanted to do. And so the decree went out that in one year's time, all the Jews would be open game. They basically made a season for hunting the Jews and allowed everybody to, they would be able to plunder, kill, and destroy the Jewish people completely. Now, chapter 4 opens up with Esther, and she is in a time like this. She is in, time, in a time of uncertain times, hard times, dangerous times. Now, Paul Harvey made a statement I like. He said, in times like these, it's helpful to recall that there have always been times like these. You know, sometimes we tend to think we're in unique times. Oh, they've never faced what we face. Oh, yes, they have. Uh, well, there's always been times like these. We still live in times like these. Uncertainty, turbulence, crooked leaders, an unsure future. We face much of the same things that they faced even in the time of Esther, except for that whole annihilation thing yet. Amen. But the, these powerful forces got the king to make a decree, and the date had been set. The neighbors of the Jews could destroy, kill them, and take all their wealth. When Mordecai heard this, he was devastated. The Bible says he went to the middle of the city and he tore his clothes and he put on uh, sackcloth and ashes and he cried out this news, chapter 4, verse 1. There was a servant named Hatach that started to go back and forth between Esther and Mordecai and this is how they communicated. And here's what we still continue to learn in the book of Esther. Not only in this book, by the way, but in the book of Daniel and also in Genesis with the story of Joseph that God not only uses His people, but God will use anyone He chooses to use, whether they be His people or not. Uh, he uses people in secular, public, and cultural institutions. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turneth it whithersoever he will. God's in control. Uh, lest we think that God has uh, been shot off His throne and is no longer able to handle... God's in control, and uh, those that wish they were are not. It is so easy to get discouraged with all that's going on in our country today, but faith in God will give you peace for your soul. Can I encourage you and make a suggestion? Turn off CNN and Fox News and get into this book a little more. It'll help you. Uh, it's If you turn off the news and you love your neighbor and you live for God, your blood pressure will go down you'll be a happier and more peaceful person. Uh, you know what this will do? Instead of being an impacted person, you'll be an impact person. We live so much of our lives impacted by other things, outward forces. But we are, our goal and our plan and our theme this year is that we are not impacted people. We're impact people. We make an impact on others. Uh, so I encourage you in that. We can have a tremendous impact in this day and age. Instead of complaining about the darkness, my friend, why don't you turn on your light? We are to be the light of the world. Let's just turn on our light because in the darkest night, the smallest light makes the biggest difference, amen? And so we can have a tremendous impact in our society today. Notice how Esther 
uh, responds in chapter 4, verse 4. She hears about him being out there and uh, had tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. So the Bible says she sent Raymond to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. There's a lesson here. Esther offered an unwise solution. She would remove the symptoms, but leaving the disease untreated. She sent fresh clothes. Mordecai knew a change of clothes is not going to change his situation. That's not going to fix the problem. And can I tell you today the same is true for sinners? Sinners all over today try to put on the garments of improvement, self-improvement, of education, or of religion, and somehow they hope that somehow this will change the fact that they're condemned. But uh, mankind is so prone to deal with the symptoms instead of the condition. The condition that all of us are born with is sin. We're born in sin, and there's nothing that we can do it about it. We cannot remedy this uh, problem on our own. We can't live enough, uh, do enough good deeds. We can't live enough of a good life. Baptism is not going to do it. The church, church membership is not going to do it. Uh, anything you do is not going to do it. There's only two religions in the entire world, my friend. That is the religion of do and the religion of done. I was just talking to a preacher this week, and we we're talking about religion and my background, and he had a similar background, and, and uh, he says it's amazing how different religions uh, put the same kind of oppression and pressure on people, even though they might be entirely different. You take a religion in the Middle East, and then a religion like the Amish religion or Mormonism, all these different things put the same pressure and oppression on people. And one of the things I replied to him, and I believe, is that it's because there's only really two religions out there. There's only two. There's a religion in the Bible that says Jesus Christ died for our sins in our place. There's nothing I can do for salvation except accept, accept, accept his gift on my behalf. Uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then there's the religion of do. I have to do works. I have to do good deeds. I have to do all these different things. That's putting on the cloaks of religion. And that's not going to change your situation. That's not going to change anything about, it's not going to make anything any better. So, uh, the truth is that uh, because of our sin condition, we all deserve eternity in hell. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God. I love those two words. We have a problem we can do nothing about, but God. Commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a blessing that is. I hope you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. I'm thankful that I have a God in heaven who made a way. So Mordecai's message to Esther here, he told her what she has to do to spare her people and her. She would have to go to the king. This was a risky proposition. Uh, Esther is not only is she found in a time like this, we also see that she's in the right place at the right time. But even if Esther wants to do something about the problem, she only does so at great risk. She's kind of between a rock and a hard place. And here's the danger. If you look at verse number 11 of chapter 4, basically she says that all the king's people know that whoever approaches the king uh, without being summoned can be put to death. Can you imagine that? If you just go to the king and you're not summoned by him, you could be put to death for it. And uh, she goes on to tell us that the only exception is if the king extends a golden scepter to them. And then she, go, then she mentions that I haven't been called to see him in 30 days, which is an interesting fact. Remember, by, she could add this too, by the way. She doesn't say this, but she could add, remember, I'm only here because the last queen got a little 
got a little heavy on her britches. She got, she got a little too brave. She told the king what she would and wouldn't do. I'm only here because of the, uh, because of the, uh, boldness of the last queen. Plus, she added, I've been called for 30 days. Now, can I tell you this king's not going to sleep alone? The fact that she's not been called to him means that she could be on the outs and not even know about it. She could be out of favor. In other words, I'm just saying she's taking a great risk here. And she says that I could lose everything. And I love Mordecai's faith. If you read 14, if you remain silent at this time, basically, he says, deliverance for the Jews is going to arise from another place. That's great faith. I'm not going to focus on that, but that's some faith right there. If we don't do anything, God's still going to save his people. I don't know how he'll do it. Then he goes on and he tells her, that uh, the, uh, he says, but you and your father's family will perish, so he's confident God will save them. If, you're, if you risk losing the palace, he essentially tells her, you might lose everything. But if you don't risk losing the palace, you will lose everything. That's essentially his message to her. And then he turns positive, and he says, and who knoweth whether thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this? What a challenge to her then and to us today. What will you do in a time like this. Who knows that God has not called us to be a light in a time like this? I believe He has. He makes no mistakes. May I tell you, friend, there's no better time to shine. There's no better time to have an impact than right now. Let's talk a minute about COVID. My, oh my, did not that not bring the fear of people to the surface when COVID came? And of course, we need to take wise steps, and I'm glad we did take wise steps against it, but uh, that brought out the tremendous fear of people. And what a time to make an impact, even during that time. Scientists first developed nuclear weapons technology during World War II. The United States is the only country that has ever used nuclear weapons. He's dro we dropped two on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in, on August 6 and 9, 1945, respectfully. These bombs killed over 200,000 people. What followed at that time was a great fear of nuclear war. Uh, President Harry Truman implemented uh, the Federal Civil Defense Administration school drill. They would hold these drills where children would hide under desks. These schools instructed the teachers that as they're teaching and, and as they're uh, going about their lesson, that all of a sudden with no warning, they would yell, drop, and the kids would get underneath their desks and put some a coat above them or a, a, some hooks above them to protect them. And they ran these drills to get the kids used to what could happen. In 1951, the government introduced a video in schools called Duck and Cover. It featured Bert the turtle who ducked and covered under the desks uh, when he saw a bright flash of light. And I'm simply saying all this because it, the, this prospect of the atomic bomb filled the American people with terror and even children lived in a constant fear of the atomic bomb. Now, during that time lived a man named C.S. Lewis, and most of you know him. And uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a statement to Christians at that time and I want to read you that statement. It's kind of lengthy, but I want to read you his statement that he wrote. But I want you to do something today, mental exercise. I want you to replace any reference to the atomic bomb and replace it with COVID. Okay, let's have that practice right now as we go through. This is his statement. Insert COVID in place of the atomic bomb. I begin. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? 
I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when the age of cancer, uh, when raiders of Scandinavia might cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you already are living in the age of cancer, an age of paralysis. This was when uh, polio, this is when my dad got polio, and this is when, when it was raging, an age of car accidents. In other words, he says, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. I'll insert that's what happened during COVID. We had people thinking we're the first ones that ever faced anything like this. Oh, the horror of a disease that gives you a 96% chance of living. Uh, it's not even close. Friend. I'm not trying to make light of it. It's just not even close to the worst that the world has seen. But it caused fear. I go on with this quote. Believe me, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. A quite high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because scientists have added one more chance of premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death was not a chance at all, but a certainty. It, it's interesting to me that some people acted during this time and, and others that by living in fear, they might get out of life alive. It's not going to happen, is it? And what he's trying to make the point of here, and it's so valid, it, we're, we're going to die anyway at some time. So why are we getting all bent out of shape at one more possibility when there's already dozens of possibilities out there? All right? I go on. The first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, uh, chatting to our friends, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. Let it not dominate our minds. Oh, friend today, can I encourage you, instead of letting fear dominate our minds, how about we remember the words of 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of a sound mind and uh, of power and of love. We still live in a time like this. My question is to you today, will you determine to make an impact? Mordecai said, I know you're afraid, Esther. I know you're scared. I know that there's a risk involved, but maybe, Esther, just maybe, maybe you're where you are for such a time as this. Who knoweth thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? The word come there in the Hebrew word is in a passive verb form. What we could say it this way, who knows if you were not brought to your position because of this. He's essentially saying you are where you are by grace, Esther. You've been given this uh, position. You didn't earn your beauty. That's how she got there. God gave that to you. And oh, the same thing could be said for all of us. God has enabled each one of us to make an impact for Him. You have the talents you have. You didn't earn them. They were given to you. You have, have went through doors of opportunity that you did not open. They opened for you. Everything you have is a matter of grace. I remember it like yesterday. I was sitting in my office at 1300 Front Avenue Northwest in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I got, this was in July of 2014. Unexpectedly, I, I got a phone call on my cell and I looked at the screen and it was unexpected because it was a friend I hadn't talked to in quite a long time. It was a close friend of mine and, and in the ministry and, and, uh, named Daniel Minton. 
and uh, he's, he's still pastoring today. But uh, I answered the call, and after some niceties, he said, hey, I gave your name to a church, and they're probably going to be calling you. Uh, they did call me, and we talked, and they invited me to come and visit Bible Baptist Church in Brookings. I didn't pry open this door of opportunity. It was open for me. God did that. Now, I'll be honest with you. We had been praying for a year uh, for where God wanted us uh, to be, for, for me to be a pastor at. My wife and I have been praying for a year that God would take us down south. We met in North Carolina. We met in North Carolina, and we both love the south. We still do. Uh, we, we enjoy it. I, I always I think it's interesting. They say the people in the, of the south are so different. Down south, just to give you some insight, is where people are very kind and sweet and nice to you, but they don't mean it. Uh, people up north are mean to you, but they mean it. That's kind of the difference between the north and the south, okay? But we prayed uh, to go south, and, and uh, then one day I got a call from Dakota, south Dakota. Can I tell you, friends, when you pray, make it specific, amen? Make it specific. I'm simply saying I'm here because of God's providential circumstances. I didn't open this door. I didn't know this place existed until God opened that door. And it begins to dawn on Esther here that maybe her privileges are not hers alone. Maybe she's been given this place to really make a difference. And so she says in verse 16, these beautiful words, I will go in the king, which is not according to the law, she said. In other words, I will break the law. I will take the danger. I will take the risk. And if I perish, I perish. But she says, I'm going to try to do what I can do to make this difference. She was willing to take a risk. Hudson Taylor, that great missionary, said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. As with a, as with a turtle, friend, the only, you're only going to move forward by sticking your neck out. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck in one place. And uh, we, in our risk-adverse life, what we do is we have a distorted view of life's real dangers. You ever notice that? I'll give you an example. The chance of dying on a commercial airplane flight is 1 in 800,000. The chance of dying in an automobile accident is 1 in 5,000. 1 in 800,000, 1 in 5,000. Yet every day, every week, people somewhere, and I've heard them and you have too, oh, no, I don't fly. I'm afraid of flying. I'm going to drive. One in 800,000, one in 5,000. In order not to take a risk, we're taking a bigger risk in another way. That's what, that's what a risk-adverse type of mentality will get you. You know, we're quite silly when it comes to taking risks in our life. Did you know that if you buy a lottery ticket, you're 13 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to win that lottery ticket? And yet, people buy them all the time. But here's the problem, and don't miss this thought here. In trying to avoid risk, we take bigger risks in areas that really matter. We, we, we're trying to avoid risks sometimes for our own physical well-being, and then we, we take risks in things that really matter for eternity. You can do nothing. You can be nothing. You can help nobody. You can take no risks and make no impact on anybody. And to me, that's a bigger risk right there. Uh, than taking the risk to make an impact. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked, he never tried, he never sang or prayed. And when one day he passed away, 
his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. You know, some people live, but they don't really live. If you want to really live, you'll make an impact in someone's life, and sometimes it carries a risk. Impact people see risk as opportunity. Uh, they see uh, they, the, the possibility of success makes it worth the risk. They do not fear failure, because after all, failure is not a person. Failure is an event. Failure is a teaching opportunity. Ro uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, the only man who never makes a mistake is the man who never does anything. And if you try to do something for God and you try to live for God, you'll make mistakes and you'll learn and you'll get wiser and you'll be able to have a bigger impact yet for God. Don't be a do-nothing type of Christian. Edison, Thomas Edison spent over $100,000 for 6,000 different uh, fiber specimens for his filament for the light bulb. Only three of them worked out of 6,000. Each failure brought him that much closer to the solution to his problem. Thomas Edison's facilities in West Orange, New Jersey, was heavily damaged by fire in December of 1914. Thomas Edison, along with one of his assistants, was standing outside the next morning in the charred rubble of all of his work, and he had lost over a million dollars worth of equipment, and, and uh, he had lost years and years of research and notes that he had taken. And as he stood there in those charred embers, he said this to his assistant, Well, all our mistakes are burned up. Now we can start anew. Would you say Thomas Edison made an impact in this world? Absolutely. Esther was putting her faith in God, and she took a risk. And she said, If I perish, I perish. Can I tell you, friend, that without taking some risks in our life, we're not going to make an impact. Some of us never witness to another person because the risk of getting rejected. You'll never win anybody if you never tell anybody. It takes a risk. Anything we do takes a risk. If you want to get married, sir, and you ask a girl to marry you, there's a risk involved, amen? She might say no. She might say yes, huh? And, uh, and, and so there's a risk in everything we want and we do. There's always going to be a risk. Do we take it or not? Let's take it for God. That's what Esther did. If I perish, I perish. Now, chapter 5 opens up with Esther getting all dressed up to see the king. Do you remember when she won the king's heart the first time? She didn't get dolled up like the rest of the women. She just went as she was, and her beauty was enough. And uh, But this time she goes all out. She puts her royal apparel. She is gorgeous. And you can get the picture here. The king is sitting there with all of his uh, all the people around him, and they would be dressed in their royal best. And then here comes Esther, and she would be... Uh, gorgeous and beautiful. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out the, to Esther the golden scepter. You understand, all eyes would not be on the king. The eyes wouldn't even be on Esther. But when she showed up, every eye went to that scepter. Because if he put that scepter out, it would mean that she was accepted and she could go forth. If she didn't put that scepter out, it means that she would be killed no matter who she was. And the king raises the scepter and shows mercy and grace to her. Then she steps forward and accepts his grace. What a picture we have here. There is another king who is bound by a law greater than the law of the Medes and the Persians. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It is an irrevocable law that has to be adhered to. Like the law of the Medes and the Persians, it could not be amended. That sin had to be paid for. Uh, and praise God, it was paid for in full by our Savior. 
There is nothing that you and I could have done about it. Now Jesus, having paid the price, holds out his scepter of grace. And all we have to do is go up and touch it. And then we enter not into his wrath, but into the courts of his mercy. Like Queen Esther, in order to receive that mercy and grace, we must, we must reach out and grasp the scepter. We must ask uh, the Lord Jesus, whosoever shall call upon him shall be saved. So the king asks for, asks her, what's your request? And I'm going to read it all for sake of time, but essentially she says, I'm cooking some brisket with all of the fixings, and I'd like for you and Haman to come over. Part of that's in the Hebrew, but uh, she's, she's making a banquet. I'd like to invite you and Haman. He responds the same way any man would respond who's been invited to a banquet. Get Haman, let's go. That's what essentially the Bible says. And so they go, and again, when they get to the banquet, the king says, what is your request? And here is a little bit of a mystery for us. She doesn't tell him. Look at verse 8. She says, instead, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the Lord said. So they're at a banquet, and her request at this banquet is that they might come to another banquet. Now, was she afraid? Was fear just so heavy she couldn't bring herself to say it now? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know one thing. God was in this because of what's going to happen next. And so uh, Esther put her request off for one more day. And uh, Haman, meanwhile, is pumped. He is excited because, after all, Haman is all about Haman and promotion, uh, self-promotion. And so to be invited to dine with the king and the queen, he's moving up in this world. And so he kind of hops and skips out of the palace, probably he's heading home, and then he comes face to face with the guy at the gate, Mordecai. Mordecai. Everybody else is bowing when he goes by, but Mordecai doesn't get up. Sup, Haman? That's all he says. He doesn't bow. He doesn't give reverence. And Haman is furious. He can't stand it. He's so angry. And so he doesn't blow up right there, but he goes home and he, he complains to his wife. Crying, honey bun, it's not fair. Mordecai won't bow to me. And he's complaining to his wife. Now she, this is, you got to read a little bit between the lines, but she asks some questions. Wait a second, you got invited to dine with the king and the queen? Yes. And you got invited twice? Yes. No one else got invited? No, just you? Yes. And then she says, like only a wife can do in her loving tone, why are you being such a baby about it then? Well, he answers the question, verse 13. Yet all this availeth me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Now, don't miss this. Haman is miserable. He is, of all men here, most miserable. Yet he was just honored by the king and queen of Persia. He is, he is in the top of the land. He is in the king's cabinet. He should have every, every reason to be grateful. But the disapproval of one man makes him feel worthless. All the things in his life are going his way. But one area gets out of whack. And nothing else matters. This is a perfect description of how empty the rewards of this life are. The rewards of this world. Haman's insecurity demands that he's going to be honored by everybody, which means he'll never be happy because you're never going to make everybody happy. You can try, but you're not going to do it. This hunger for acceptance, it is built in us, but it is only and can only be fulfilled in Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 6, we are accepted in the beloved. Haman's problem wasn't Mordecai. Haman's problem was the emptiness in his heart. And if Haman would kill Mordecai, it wouldn't take care of the emptiness in his heart. So he would be like so many people in the world today, constantly searching for the next thing to fill that emptiness. 
And it's just never filled because the soul was made for God and nothing but God can fill it and make it happy. Friend, if you go through this life and you think that anything can make you happy, you'll only be disappointed. Now, we see in chapter 5 that Esther was not the only one to have a party that day. Haman also hosted a party at his house. It was a pity party. And his wife and friends, uh, they're listening to him, and so they tell him what to do. Look at verse 14. Let a gallows be made of 50 cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. It wasn't enough to punish Mordecai's people. The genocide of the Jews is already in motion. But they waited for Haman to ask for a public humiliate, or they wanted him to ask the king for a public humiliating execution of Mordecai on gallows that would be 75 feet high. Now, let me explain these gallows because you have to read in history to find out what, how they did this. This was not the kind of gallows you'd see in a Tim Eastwood movie, uh, Clint Eastwood movie, I'm sorry, uh, out west where they hang guys and they have the trap door. This is not the type of gallows we're talking about here. What this, what they did is they had a straight, long pole that would go, this, this one would go 75 feet high. And, uh, I'll read the, the one historian's account here. A pointed stake is set upright in the ground and the culprit is taken, placed on the sharp point, and then pulled down by his legs until the stake went in, not, shall not to be true, crude here, but it went in at the backside and up through the body and out through the neck. The victim lives a considerable time in excruciating agony. Anybody want to go that way? That's a horrible, horrible way to die. And you know what Haman said? And the thing pleased Haman. Never underestimate the incredible power of hatred. This same irrational hatred that Haman, he wanted to see Mordecai hang in such a manner, is the same irrational hatred that made man want to hang Jesus Christ on a cross. Never, never get caught up in hatred. What happens next is just more providential circumstances. So chapter 6 opens up, and it just so happened that night that the king couldn't sleep. And when he couldn't sleep, uh, he anybody ever fall into that, by the way? Two nights ago that happened to me. I prepared this message before it happened. Maybe it was a mental thing. Then it happened to me. Couldn't sleep for no reason, just couldn't sleep. Uh, you know, the body's tired, but the mind says, let's play, and there's just nothing happening. You just can't go to sleep. Uh, and it's an interesting thing that it doesn't matter if you rule the world, King Ahasuerus. If you can't sleep, you can't do anything about it. Doesn't matter how big you are. And uh, you can buy an expensive bed, but you can't buy sleep. Amen? And so, by the way, that's we can be grateful for that, uh, for what we have that way. But King Ahasuerus did what many others do when they can't sleep. He brought out a book. because, And this is smart what he did, because nothing will put you to sleep like reading from a government book, like tax code or something like that. So he says, get one of these governmental books. I need to be out in a second here. This is an awesome example of providential circumstances because he could use, he could choose from 20 different ways to deal with being, not being able to fall asleep. He chooses a book. And then the one he sends for a book could pick from hundreds of books, but he picks a certain book. And then when he opens that book, he could have turned to any one of hundreds of pages, but he turns to a certain page and he starts to read about the fact that Mordecai saved the king. The king, whoa, man, I forgot about that. And he says, did we ever reward Mordecai for that? Did we ever honor him for saving my life? And they found out, no, we didn't honor Mordecai. And uh, so 
All these things happening together. By the way, don't tell me that God does not work in the details of your life. Oh, he's always working, even when it seems like he's not. The king says, did we ever honor him? Now, look if you will here. Uh, let's see uh, where we're at uh, in chapter 6, verse number 4. If you've got, especially if you've got a King James Bible, you see a little symbol there before the word, and the king said. Uh, that's called the pilcrow, and that is to mark a little passage of time or a new paragraph. And so with that pilcrow there, we can assume that it is now the next morning because he says, did we ever honor him? And then it immediately jumps to who is in the king's court. And now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house. <laughs> Here's a great picture. So the king is bothered. He says, we never honored Mordecai. I need to talk to someone about this. Meanwhile, Haman comes in early to get an arrest warrant for Mordecai so that he could put him up on that pole and kill him in that horrible way. And he says, I need to talk to the king. So we see two forces about to collide. You have the king who is heading towards the outer court and he said, I need to talk to uh, Haman because we haven't honored Mordecai. We need to honor Mordecai. And here is Haman walking the other direction toward the king. I need to talk to the king as soon as I can because I want to kill Mordecai. We've got to kill Mordecai. Whew, this sets it up for a great scene. What happens next? Come back next Sunday and you'll find out. Did it work? We do that at VBS and it makes the kids come back. So I'm just hoping it'll work for you as well. Don't miss next week. This just gets better and better. But we're talking today about God working in our lives to impact those around us. Esther had an impact in such a time as this, in a time like this. In times like these, it helps us to recall that there have always been times like these. I'm asking you, friend, will you have an impact in a time like this? Political unrest, moral degradation, loneliness and depression, people all around us desperate for someone just to care about them. Will you have an impact? Will you shine in a dark place? Let me ask you this. Do you complain about your circumstances? You ever ask the question, how are you doing? And they say, I'm doing fine under the circumstances. Can I tell you the circumstances are like a mattress? If you lie under a mattress, you suffocate. But to get on top of that mattress, you find rest. Same way with circumstances. Don't live under the circumstances. Get on top of your circumstances and trust God to use those circumstances, pleasant or unpleasant, to help you make an impact in someone's life. That's what happened with Esther. Are you upset when things don't go the way, as you, the way you like? Or are you able to say, maybe God can use me in a time such as this? He did Esther. He will you. What difference are you making in the life of someone else right now? Are you making an impact? I hope you are. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.